It's Monday, June 1st, 2020. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode number eight of the 5049 Records Corona Cast. How you guys doing? You hear that music back there? That is some gorgeous solo piano playing by an old dear friend of mine called Jamie Saft. Let's uh let's listen to some of this. Jamie's got a new solo record out. It's called The Golden Scale and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Today on the show, Jamie Saft. Before we get into it, uh, I just want to point you and your attention towards a couple of things. Number one, uh, despite my very clear and vocal criticism and you know borderline disdain for the trend of um, online live streaming concerts that have been happening since quarantine started in March, I'm going to be doing one this Wednesday, and I'm going to try to make it special. Uh, Pioneer Works. I, I've mentioned in some previous episodes that this June I was actually supposed to be doing a residency there, and you know, sadly, it's been canceled or or, or postponed rather. Uh, but they've, with in collaboration with the Experimental Sound Studio in Chicago, have put together uh, a pretty spectacular evening of music in the live streaming format. That's happening this Wednesday, June third. You can access the concert a lot of different ways. Just go to the Pioneer website. It's pioneerworks.org slash broadcast. The show starts at 7.30. Ben Greenberg playing solo. I'm going on at 8, but there's also going to be music by Yuka Honda, by Greg Fox, by Leah Bertucci. It's really going to be a cool evening of music, and I'm going to do what I can to make it somehow you know, more special than just staring into my laptop camera and you know playing some questionable music. So do that. The other thing uh, I would point your attention to is that this Friday, June 5th, once again, Bandcamp, which, to be very clear, of all the ways you can you can get music digitally, Bandcamp is far and away, without question, the most artist-friendly. Bandcamp, head and shoulders above... All other services, Spotify, Apple Music, they they really do what they can to do right by artists. And this Friday, June 5th, they will be waiving all of their fees. And that could be a lot of money. You know, they, they take uh, 15% of every sale. So if you're thinking about checking out some new music, you want to maybe check out my new record, I would encourage you to do that. Um, go to Bandcamp, stock up. Buy a bunch of music this Friday. Get Jamie's new record. It's called The Golden Scale. Um, I just, yeah, I just want to put that out there. This Friday, if you've been thinking about getting some new music, go over to Bandcamp and and go wild. Just know that in doing so, your purchases will be going much farther uh, for the artists than they normally would. All right, Jamie Saft. You guys know Jamie. Uh, he was last on the show in, I think, 2014? I think so. That was one of the ones that a lot of people reached out and they were like, "Yeah, man, that was great." You know, if you if you ever have people back, you got to have Jamie back. And I've been wanting to do this for a while. And um, so you know, I've since reinvigorating this podcast for quarantine. I, I've been doing something which I always 
was very much against, which is I have to do these interviews via via FaceTime. And, you know, fortunately, Jamie's a recording engineer, so he was able to set up a mic where he is. And, you know, the, the, the recording quality is pretty good. It sounds, I would say it sounds like we're in the same room, except for something I'm really happy to report, which is Jamie sat outside on his uh, his back deck. So as we were doing this on FaceTime, I was on my iPad. He was on his iPad. I could just see the clear blue skies of the Hudson Valley behind him, uh, the, the the rolling clouds. I could hear bees. And most most crucially, throughout this entire conversation, you can you can hear the crickets. You can hear the Hudson Valley behind Jamie. And I grew up in the Hudson – well, near the Hudson Valley. And – uh, to me, that sound is just the sound of my childhood. It just like it's really evocative for me, and you know, I think this will be the first summer uh, in many, many years that I won't be spending some time upstate, um, which you know, it's definitely a bummer. But yeah, yeah, I just you know, you will hear throughout the conversation, you will hear the sound of the Hudson Valley, and I couldn't be happier that uh, that it's in there. You guys know Jamie. You love Jamie. Check out his new record. Check out all of his new records. He's constantly putting music out, uh, and he's got a lot of really interesting stuff happening right now. Go to jamiesaft.com, and that's it. Hope you guys are all cool. Here is my conversation from just this past Saturday with my brother, Jamie Saft. What it, what's that mic I'm looking at? It's a Heel PR40. Heel PR40. I got to say, I'm, I can hear the crickets behind you. Yeah. It's and like the- one of the, you know, last time we talked or we hung out in person, which hilariously was potentially the last normal day in New York City. True. And we went we went to Shopsons and ended up walking by um, the site of the old tonic. We sure did. Uh, but we you you, uh, you we were talking about that Albert Eiler box set and all those amazing interviews with him. You can hear crickets in the background. Oh, absolutely! It's so mesmerizing too. Those interviews. I mean, I could just listen to only the interview segments from that box set, from both those box sets, from mm-hmm. the Re- the Revenant box set, uh, and also the new story of Albert Eiler that came out on ESP that I I have loaded into Apple Music and. I could just listen to it over and over. My children hate it, and they always ask me to turn it off. It because it's AA. It comes on first when I put when I plug my phone in in the car. Right. So it just starts playing Albert Eiler talking about his time in Sweden, uh, and he talks about meeting Cecil Taylor. And I mean, I could listen to this over and over just the sound of his voice and of course the crickets and mm-hmm. it's just recorded up really up close and beautiful and um wow i don't I love know that. that i think with him and those recordings specifically i can't think of another musician whose music you know means a lot to me who i've spent a lot of time with where once i heard their speaking voice it added a whole new dimension of what Absolutely. the music means to me 
Absolutely. Absolutely. He has the most beautiful speaking voice, and it's just like his uh, voice, <laughs> I mean, his musical voice. It's, well, it's, really, it's really, like, thoughtful and gentle. Yes, beautiful. Yeah. So is his music, so thoughtful and gentle. Yeah. You know, so um, it's a perfect match. It's obviously him, and, you know, frankly, um, I think we'd find that with many of our heroes, that mm-hmm. their speaking voice and their musical voice are uh, connected. You know, I would always get... Um, one of my neighbors here in the country uh, was the great Roswell Rudd. And, and uh, he's just one of my heroes and just one of the most positive people you, you'd ever meet. And you could count on uh, the most amazing hug and a smile and the way he would say my name in his voice. He would say, Jamie. And he'd hug me. Yeah. And just everything was was good again, <laughs> you know. And no matter what your state of mind, Roswell would always uh, take you to the positivity zone. So well, so um, I mean, you you moved upstate in 2007. How when did you first encounter Roswell on a personal level? Well, I, I met Ros pretty quickly uh, after I moved here. You know, Roswell and uh, his wife Verna Gillis, who's also, also a legend, total legend. Uh, live very close to me here in the country. They live about five minutes drive away. Uh, and so Roswell and Verna started coming here to record in my studio um, very soon after I moved here because we're so close by, you know. And so uh, first they came and knew me as an engineer. Um, but I think Roswell pretty quickly figured out that I could play. And um, so I used to, I spent a lot of time learning from Roz and hanging with him and from Verna. Verna is also a really important uh, figure in music. And uh, so, yeah, I was just so lucky to have met Roswell pretty quickly after I met here. And they recorded so many things here at my studio, including... Uh, a lot of the last few records that Roswell made before he passed away, he did a record, uh, a quartet with Faye Victor and Lafayette Harris. Hmm. Uh, that's on Rare Noise. Uh, we did a quartet record that I'm extremely proud of called Strength and Power. That's, that's with, with Trevor Dunn and Balish Pendy? Correct. Correct. Uh, that also came out on Rare Noise and... Um, but I also recorded a lot of Roswell's tunes and uh, a lot of Verna and Roswell's tunes together. They would always write songs together about their lives. They have a tune where they rap together, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, was very fortunate over the last uh, few years of Roswell's life when he was quite sick uh, to spend a lot of time one-on-one with him playing duos. And so I, I would go over his house, or when he was feeling up to it, he would come here. Um, he has a beautiful Steinway as well. They have a beautiful Steinway as well. So um, I learned a lot of Herbie Nichols tunes from Roswell. Mm-hmm. You know, Roswell um, was one of the great scholars of, of music, but certainly of Herbie Nichols' music, and had... Uh, a book that he put together of basically unpublished Herbie Nichols tunes that Herbie had taught him that he had played with Herbie Nichols. And um, 
Roswell was sort of the historian of that book of music. And so was so lucky to learn some, some of those tunes with him and work on a lot of Roswell's tunes. And Roswell has hundreds of tunes. Yeah, um, yeah. And they're difficult. <laughs> you know, they're, in, in what sense? Well, Roswell's music was... Uh, Roswell made his music seem really easy and uncomplicated. Uh, and it was deceptively difficult. Um, right. It seem, he made it seem easy, but they were really um, specific, his compositions, and he wanted them played right. And he deserved to hear them played right. <laughs> you know, and uh, he was so lucky to have, you know, years playing with everybody. I mean, Roswell played with Albert Eiler. Yeah, on the and, New York um, Ioneer. And has incredible Albert Eiler stories about how they did that record. And actually, uh, a couple of years before Roswell passed away, I actually interviewed Roswell in really? his. Yes, I did in his living room. It's about a two-hour interview, and I've never done anything with it. But um, it's a lot of me saying, "Wow." <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, and I remember that. I'll never forget that because when I looked, I had uh, a good friend of mine who I do tons of work with, my friend Vin Sin, who's yeah. a master engineer from Brooklyn and a brother. Um, Vin, uh, Vin came up and set up his nice cameras and we did this multi-camera shot in oh, Roswell wow. and Verna's house. And when I looked back on it, it really struck me. Wow. You should shut up when the, uh, the when the person you're interviewing is talking because I was kind of sitting there going, "Whoa, wow!" <laughs> and everything he said because it was incredible. He started yeah. Ros Roswell started from when he was a, a young boy, and he told me about how his father had uh, they had a drum set in their kitchen, and it was just there was a drum set there, and he would just sit down and play drums. And you know, Roswell played with Albert Eiler and Archie Shep and uh, everybody and yeah. knew everybody. And so, mm -hmm. uh, the stories are just incredible. And eh, maybe someday I'll, I'll put that interview together and try and edit out me going, yeah, whoa, man. No, I think, Amazing. You, I mean, you know, I think, and like this, what we're doing right now is potentially one example of it, but musicians have a different way of communicating than they would with like an interviewer interviewer. Certainly. And I think, I think when there is a shared enthusiasm, it pushes the conversation to a place that wouldn't go otherwise. And I'm sure some of what you got out—I mean, having never heard it, I'm sure some of what you got out of Roswell was based on mutual admiration and you having the enthusiasm for his stories. Well, I—I I, I would think so. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is—it's—it's it's one of the um, really great joys of being a musician for decades and decades is you get to meet your heroes and people that you've been listening to your whole life that were so important to your music and um if you're humble and you're sweet and you don't try and steal their soul then they'll <laughs> give you anything you know well what I you mean? know i think the last time you and i spoke for one of these things it's already been five or six years and i think we might have talked briefly about about that thing of playing with people that you admire and making records with with masters but certainly since then you've done a lot of that you've made records with with roswell with leo smith with uh, uh marshall allen 
I mean, I'm, and I know there's there's several uh, more. Many, many more. Danny Ray Thompson and Marshall Danny Island from Sun Ra, Dave Liebman. Right. Uh, Hamid Drake, Steve Swallow and Bobby Previtt, Iggy Pop. Exactly. Um, you know, I'm, man, towering I'm, figures. The most towering of all figures. And, you know, my heroes and people whose music was so important to me um, in my own musical development. And, you know, uh, I'm so lucky to get to play with so many legends at that level and in, in so many varied types of music as well. You know, people like Joe Morris and Charles Downs mm-hmm. uh, and Joe McPhee. Another one, yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And um, so lucky to still be learning from these guys. And these guys are still learning. You know, I just, uh, I have a new record on Rare Noise with another one of my heroes who we all listened to when we were young. And that is, uh, that's Master Jerry Grinelli. Jerry, um... Jerry is a, a music legend and uh, a legend of Tibetan Buddhist paths as well. And uh, I met Jerry when I first moved to New York uh, through his son, Jay Grinelli. And Jay's a great bass player. And uh, played with Jerry when I was a young kid. And there was a whole bunch of us who played with Jerry. We were young. and Up in, in and Boston? Or? No, this was in New York when we first moved to New York okay. in the early 90s. I met... I think I met Jay probably in 93 or 94, right when I moved down to New York, you right. know, and um, very quickly introduced me to his lunatic father. And, of course, I had been listening to Jerry playing on the Peanuts Christmas music. The Vince Garaldi. The Vince Garaldi trio yeah. uh, my whole life. And, you know, growing up in New York as a Jewish kid, the sound of winter was the sound of Jerry Grinelli's brushes, you know, and the sound of them skating on the ice. That was the tempo. That was a signifier that winter in New York was here. And, of of course, uh, 25 years later, I I met that guy who played that. And as soon as we started playing, I immediately felt that that feeling Mm -hmm. that I had had. And it's a certain flow. It's like the first time you play with a great master of swing drumming, you know, and Jerry is that. Um, and I've been so lucky to play with so many masters of that, of that discipline. Um, but Jerry has a particular sort of bounce to his mm-hmm. swing. But he, yeah, also, yeah. he also really features the sort of Buddhist path in what he does. So, well, how so? Um, well... Jerry and I have a record called Nowness, and it's about, that's it. It's, you know, being in the moment, trusting in the path, knowing that the music is good and that the path is good and that uh, we love and respect each other. So we're going to make great music and we don't need uh, compositions or some pre-existing idea of what we're going to do. Um, and so that was really what was so interesting. If I can jump forward decades yeah. to, I mean, I, I played on a number of Jerry's records, many records. Jerry had a band called Badlands with Jay, his son, and a bunch of other great horn players in it, many horn players and me. Uh, Jerry and I have two duo records, 
one from the late 90s called The Only Juan. The Only Juan. Um, we used to call each other Juan. I, I don't really remember why, but we all called each other Juan. And, uh, and so we have this record called The Only One. That's a fascinating record, Jeremiah. That, In what sense? I'll tell you. That was recorded. It's a duo record with uh, a gorgeous nine-foot Steinway Grand and so, uh, a couple of crazy Hammond organs that I have. Not a B3-style organs, but Hammond chord organ, some just weird, crazy organs. Uh, and Jerry on drums. It was recorded in this place called the Pequot Library that's in Southport, Connecticut, uh, near where my teacher, who was in Fairfield, Connecticut, um, taught out of my teacher as a youth, uh, who was one of my also one of my most important teachers and mentors, uh, a man named Burton Hathaway. And mm -hmm. Burton, Burton is probably almost 90 now and uh, he's still around, still plays incredibly at concert level and is a true master of the physics and mechanics and uh technique of playing the piano um and uh so burton as a kid i used to do my recitals in this gorgeous sort of wooden vaulted ceiling library in Connecticut in Southport called the Pequot Library. It's very old. It's all wooden. It's like a wooden church with these gorgeous vaulted ceilings and two nine-foot concert steinways. And uh, so we recorded it in there, and that was recorded all analog, direct to two-track <laughs> on this crazy... I'm pretty sure we used... It was recorded direct to two-track by my good friend Christian Castaño. And mm -hmm. yes, Christian Castaño, who's produced so many records with me since the 90s. He produced Loneliness Road, the Iggy Pop collaboration wait, with so me. Wait, I'm, let's just stop for a second. Is he the same Chris that owned, operated Good and Evil Studios? Correct. He used to be Chris Kelly, but now right. okay. he's Christian Castaño. Um, so um, actually on The Only Juan, my duo record with uh, Jerry... He's credited as Chris Kelly, but he's now known as Christian Castaño, total master engineer, uh, someone who taught me so much of what I know about studio techniques, about dub yeah. techniques, about uh, uh, how to use a tape machine, mm -hmm. how to edit analog tape. Very astute how to clean set of the ears. Heads. Yeah. yeah. Chris is serious, and Chris taught me how to use a console, how to create a dub mix. Um, Chris showed me Pro Tools in the late 90s before anyone was using Pro Tools. Yeah. Chris was the first. And, he's, you know, he's my brother and brilliant, inspired. Uh, he's more than an engineer because he's a deep musician as well. And, and you guys put that record live to two-inch so, tape. So that record was recorded live to two-track on my Ampex ATR100 half-inch deck, which I still have downstairs in the studio. And, uh, you know, half-inch analog tape. I'm pretty sure um, we demoed a Day King console. You know what the Day King stuff is or Da King? No, it's, what is that? Uh, it's all based... Well. This particular iteration um, was based on Trident A-Range modules, which is a very legendary 
console sound. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the sound of uh, like Queen records. We will rock you. Stuff right. like that. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I think we demoed uh, <laughs> a Day King console for that. May, maybe not. I might be wrong. I think actually now that I think about it, that was something else. I think we actually did it with like two Neumann lollipop mics placed properly in the hall with two Telefunken V76s, which we both used to have these racked Telefunken V76s, these legendary tube preamps, um, and two V76s, two Neumann lollipop mics, you know, bam, straight into the ATR. Yeah, stereo recording, but if you listen to it, it's it's just one of the most beautiful sounding recordings you'll ever hear. It's, It's so gorgeous, and... Um, the acoustic space is just so gorgeous there. It's like recording in a, a great hall in France or something. You know? I mean, I, I know that by all means, you are musician first, engineer secondary, but I do genuinely get excited about your records and that I feel you pay proper and due consideration to what the sonic vibe is going to be and make the right choices most of the time. Well, thank you. Most of the time, yes. Most of the time. I'm sure I make some horrible choices too, Jeremiah. But, but I mean, like, like no, uh, I, that, I, first, I, that first record you made on Zadik, uh, Sovlanut. Yes. That's a, that's a Pro Tools record, right? Well, not totally. That's mostly no? actually analog tape. That's mostly two-inch, bro. And so okay. I, I tracked all the basics with virtually every solo you hear, um, that was recorded at Chris and Danny's studio, Good and Evil, back in the day. Uh, we recorded, we tracked everything direct to, uh, not direct to two track, to the 16 track Ampex two inch deck. So all the basic tracks, virtually all the solos that you hear, was all tracked live to tape, you know. And then um, this was sort of the early days of people doing crazy Pro Tools records. And, you know, Chris and I were really working on... One of the things that Chris showed me is, you know, we, 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 we both really care about the Sonics. And we're both mm-hmm. lunatics with trying to get the best gear we can. The Olympic level, the championship gear, the crazy stuff. You know, Chris has a way of just... it, it The tasty stuff. Yeah, you know, and... I mean, Chris taught me many years ago that um, if you buy the best thing, it's going to sound the best, <laughs> you know, and that's it seems so simple, but it's true. And so it's better to spend on, you know, something good and just get it done and it's done, you know. And so right. it's one of the things I've always tried to do with my own studio is get the best gear I can. I've always been interested since I was a kid, really, in uh in studio techniques. But I feel like for you, a lot of how that would be defined is also by vibe. A lot of the gear I feel like you've procured, pr- oh, yeah. procured and used, it's it's about the vibe. It's oh, not yeah. necessarily something you found at a NAM show. Oh, no, definitely not. And I don't care about geeking out about gear. Like, no. that's, that's the point. Buy a great thing that's totally amazing and inspiring, and then you can just... It always works. You can never think about it again. Get out of the way and just play music. And so my whole thing and my whole MO as an engineer has always been to 
get it out of the way as quickly as possible so that the musicians can just have their flow. I am a musician, and it always drives me crazy when an engineer wants to, like, geek out about gear. Like, mm -hmm. I don't give a shit at right. all. I mean, maybe if I ask them a question about gear, I might give a <laughs> shit. But, you know, but, like, I don't, I don't want to waste time geeking out about, um, you know software or hardware or any of that stuff yeah uh, happy to answer questions and give any knowledge i have in the same way that every great engineer has done the same for me so you know i learned oh. i learned techniques in the studio by being a sideman and being a musician in recording studios and so, so we're, we're going to jump around a lot but like on the subject of gear and gear with vibes and instruments I listened this morning to your new solo record, which is fucking outstanding. Just absolutely gorgeous recording of music. Well, thank and you so much. You recorded it at a place upstate, the Piano Performance Museum. Yes. And if I'm not mistaken, at least not every piece, every other piece is a different, like some of these instruments are like almost 200 years old that you're playing. On. Yeah, it's on... Uh... It's on 11 or 12 historical pianos. So I'll give you a little background on the Piano Performance Museum. Uh, Piano Performance Museum is a really special place up in Hunter Mountain, um, you know, up in the Catskills, Hunter Mountain. Uh, the ski, it's, it's near the ski area, right by the ski area up right. there. And uh, it was put together by uh, my piano technician and tuner, master technician and tuner, a guy named Steve Greenstein. And I met Steve when I first moved up here. He's a total brother, really one of the greatest tuners I've ever met, uh, does unbelievable work. It's, you know, tuning is an art and really detail work, and um, it's not easy to do properly. And, you know, uh, Steve is a master of that discipline. And so very, right. very fortunate to have known Steve for a long time. When I first moved here, all my life I had had this Baldwin, uh, about 5'11", 6-foot grand. I remember that Baldwin. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an incredible piano. And actually, it's still here close by in the Hudson Valley. Uh, I sold it to a friend of mine who lives four minutes that way. So it's right over there in his house, in his studio, actually, and... Um, it's beautiful. It's still still around. But when I first met Steve, you know, he came over to tune my my Baldwin, and I gave him a couple of my trio records. And you know, he tuned my piano. He's a great guy. And he went home. And an hour later, he called me, and he's like, "Saft, I listen to your records. You're a motherfucker. You need a better piano. You need a Steinway. And I'm gonna find you one. It might take me a while, but I'll find you one." And I was like, great, man, find me, find me one. And, you know, I'd never been able to afford a Steinway. And so eventually uh, Steve called me up. I, I knew him for many years. He tuned that Baldwin, took great care of it, made it just into a world-class piano. It's one of the mm -hmm. best 5'11 Baldwins you'll ever play. It's a serious piano for, for what it is, beautiful instrument. And he called me up one day and he said, I found it. And I said, man, amazing. So he, uh, so he, uh, he, he found these people. It was an elderly woman who had passed away, and her children lived in Los Angeles. And 
Uh, they were trying to get top dollar down in New York City, and he said, you have to sell it to Saft, and you have to sell it to him for really a little. <laughs> you know, huh. like, and they were, you know, they were thrilled for it to go to someone who was serious, and it, it's a beautiful instrument. It's and a, what kind of condition was it in? It was in dead mint condition, unplayed. It was a 1966 Steinway, I think it's an M or an L. It's about the same size, 5'11", 5'11 um, but it's the first one that Steinway calls a concert grand. Uh -huh. um, and it's still back from the golden age of Steinways before CBS bought Steinway um, in the early 70s uh, and all the master technicians left. So it's this beautiful piano. And Steve, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Steve, so he found me this incredible Steinway. And now it, it was in dead mint condition. I mean, she had bought it new in the 60s and it sat in the same place very close to my house upstate here since then. Um, and it, you know, it had a climate kit put in it 15, 20 years ago. So it was just, it's in great shape. It's a beautiful instrument, inspired and inspiring instrument. Um, but, you know, Steve always talked about, he's like, man, I have this whole collection of antique and historical pianos and I've restored them. And um, he slowly, he was housing the collection uh, up in Hunter Mountain at the Catskill Mountain Foundation. Um, and so he's got about, I would say he's got a hundred historical pianos up there from the entire history of the instrument. Everything from, you know, square pianos, straight strung pianos, bi-chords, uh, 85 key Steinway. Right. Um, so I used about 11 historical pianos from, uh, from the collection, I used uh, a nine-foot Baldwin that was Liberace's piano, signed in paperwork, and it was absolutely li that's featured on the Golden Scale, the the new record. Uh, I used one of my favorite pianos out of the whole collection uh, is a Broadwood and Sons bichord, which you can hear on a lot of this record, and it kind of stands out. Um, I'm pretty sure A is tuned to something like 432 or less. Whoa. And so a number of those pianos, because they're historical pianos, are um, tuned differently and not to A440. And so uh, can you hear this big B buzzing I'm around loving it. me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. it's really setting good. a tone. Yeah. Hopefully the Pro Tools is uh, recording this properly. It, it, it better be. It better be. Maybe in a second I'll go check when we have a like a, a moment to just stop for a sec. But yeah, yeah, you're yeah. going to edit this shit out, right? So This shit, yeah, if we take a break. Yeah. Perfect. So, um, yeah, there's so many beautiful pianos. Uh, the Broadwood Bichord. There's straight but, but strung pianos. The... So Broadwood Bichord means two strings for each note. Even the lowest notes to the very highest notes have two strings. They're straight strung, so none of them go on angles. They just go straight up and down. Um, you know, each one is tuned to something different. Many of these pianos existed at the early moments of well-tempered instruments. I play on a, it's called a gibe. A gibe. A gibe. A gibe square piano. And I list in the liner notes all these pianos. I, I, and I looked at his website, and I was looking at a lot of the different instruments that he has up there. 
Yeah, it's an incredible collection, and you know this was recorded actually quite a while ago. Um, but was that the concept from the from the get go? Well, was yes, to go yes. up and so, do a piece on each? Yeah. So I, of course, you know, Steve is my brother, and I've been so fortunate to go up there many, many times and and play on these pianos. It's one of the great things about this particular museum. It's why he calls it the Piano Performance Museum. Is not only does he have a hundred historical pianos that he himself. Uh, has meticulously re redone completely, including he'll go find the felt factory in Germany where the wow. felts from 1911 were m- made and right. get them to make a historically accurate replacement parts. And so he's restored, like, you know, to mint condition playable condition all these instruments and incredible so not only can you look at them but you can actually play them and you know they don't just let anyone off the street come in and bang on the fancy antique pianos but um steve is my good friend and you know the hardest um well one of the challenges of this recording in particular was uh tuning all these pianos because all these pianos sit for some of them forever and have never been really played. He's restored them and brought them to tune, but nobody touches the Gibe square piano from the early 1800s, you know, just like nobody gets to play that. And so what we would do, I had two good friends of mine, Brian and Ian, uh, up engineering for me. Again, we had a little Pro Tools rig. We had some Telefunken V76s and some good mics and, um, you know, we would give Steve an hour or two per piano. We go outside and hang out. It's up in Hunter Mountain in this beautiful spot on this river that runs through the town. I mean, it's gorgeous up there and um, up in the Catskills. And so we'd go out back and hang and Steve would tune up each one of these instruments. You don't just tune them to A440, obviously. Right, so right. he had to sort of tune historically and understand what each instrument could do and then one of the one of the processes that you hear me going through with each different instrument is sort of finding each piano's sort of unique voice and yeah and so each one i had to sort of almost like wake them up again well, I mean, yeah. as an improviser, like how how much creative input were you taking from these peculiar instruments that massive, I'm assuming you didn't have a lot amounts. of? Yeah, no, there was no. It's all improvised, and um, you hear the process of me sort of figuring out the sweet spots and what these instruments do and how they work, and they're so different than yeah. uh, than just a straight up A440. And you know, as a traveling musician, I'm in Europe all the time, and you know, uh, I've been fortunate to tour so much with the great Steve Swallow, who has one of the most ridiculous, severe ears you will ever hear. And Steve really um, blew my mind the first time I went on tour with him uh, a number of years ago because we arrived at the at the venue and Steve would get his bass out and plug in. And then he would come over to the piano with like a strobe tuner. And he would sit at the piano and he would hit the A and he would just have his tuner there with a little mic. And he would be checking what the piano was tuned to. Now, in Europe, they tune to 
A is 443 or 444 right. or something like that. And so, um, uh, you know, he, he would was have, adjusting his tuning yes, to the piano? He would, he would tune to the piano, man. Wow. And it got, you know, after years of touring with him and many shows, I could play the A before he came over to the piano and he would predict what it was. He would say, sounds like 440. Actually, based on one. what you played, yeah. But just on me playing an A, he could hear four cents of sharpness or flatness. Sometimes he'd be, oh, maybe 443 or 444. Uh, you know, I'm not quite clear, but um, it's close. And he would always be right, you know. And yeah. um, so it's the same with the, you know, incredible depth that uh, a master tuner like Steve Greenstein will bring to these historical pianos. But also when he comes and tunes my Steinway, man. I mean, there's nobody like it. Um, that Steinway you have in your studio, I mean, I've sat at it briefly, but like you just play one chord and that thing just sings at you like, like yeah. a fucking... Yeah, it's magic, that thing. Steve always says a great instrument, but specifically a great piano, will talk back to you. Yeah. And they do. You know, you, it takes no effort... Um, to get a beautiful sound out of that instrument. And actually, my, my Steinway um, jazz players don't like it because it's not bright and it's really unforgiving. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just sound all, you know, sometimes you play Steinways and there's nothing you can do wrong. They just well, sound like amazing. Right. Mine is dark. And it so is dark. It's really dark. And especially when you try and play with a drummer, it's, it's not helping you. You know, you, you have to find a different plan of attack. And what, what is it? What did you? Is it about a lot of jazz musicians that are drawn to that brightness? Is it because it cuts through the, well, yeah. the group? Or yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, jazz guys end up liking Yamahas because it's less effort for them to play louder and you know get a right. big quote unquote sound, but. Um, I like a, a really a world-class instrument that's much warmer and um, sort of creamier. You know, I, I like I like that feedback from the instrument. Um, you know, every instrument is different and every tuning is different and every day that instrument is different. And so one of the things about being in the studio and putting these mics right in front of the piano, that's um, you hear everything. You hear all the faults of the instrument and you hear all the faults of the musician you know and so mm -hmm. um you know other pianos can be more forgiving but i really love the my piano is is orchestral yeah and great pianos are that the piano is such a marvel of engineering it's such an opulent ridiculous it's the furthest thing from a guitar you know, a guitar is something you string a few strings up and that's, you know, comes from folk instruments and piano comes from, you know, the industrial revolution or something. You know, it's right. a it's a it's a marvel of engineering with just intricate parts moving and when they align, it's magic. And yeah. so that was one of the fascinating things about playing on all these historical pianos for the, the Golden Scale live at the Piano Performance Museum um, is each instrument is just a completely new discovery. And, you know, 
just the simple tuning part of it gives you completely different tone colors. So yeah. what A flat, what the key of A flat major sounds like on a on a piano tuned to A four forty is just completely different than what it sounds like on a piano that's A is 432. And it's one of the reasons um, Jimi Hendrix sounds like he does. He tuned down. You know, everybody's mm -hmm. going for this A equals 432, um, you know, healing zone. I don't know anything about that. But um, it's that seems a little ridiculous to me. But what it does, uh, what I do feel when I hear someone like Jimi Hendrix is, um, there's a certain sort of relaxed feeling that you get when things are a little less uptight at A440. Right. You know, he intuitively tuned down because it sounded good there. And so I think that's sort of what you're experiencing when people, you know, morph a, a regular A equals 440 pop tune down to 432 is it's slowed down a little bit. It's a little lower key. It sounds a little more relaxed than it did. Mm -hmm. But when you're improvising on a piano that's tuned to A equals 432, every key is a completely different shade than it normally is. So there's this entire universe. It's like studying microtones. Did you, you know. find yourself like fighting some temptation to just let chords ring out and have it be oh, like yeah, a Feldman-esque kind of? Oh, oh, definitely. And you also hear on that record, I'm doing lots of, you know, yeah, and yeah. I'm like repeating these chords really loud. And it's like the pianos are opening up and they're coming alive because, you know, we talked about my teacher, Burton Hathaway. When I was a kid, I was so fortunate to have this incredible technical master teach me the physics of playing the piano. And one of the things that comes out of playing the piano properly uh, or playing any instrument properly is the instruments are very happy when you play them right. Yeah. And, you know, they come alive. And so um, you can make uh, an instrument, but specifically a piano, starts to relax, starts to open up, starts to breathe, starts to get sort of lubricated and get some energy back into it and some feeling. And so, yeah. you know, sometimes that means that the tuning goes really quickly too. So that was well, definitely... I have to imagine on some of these instruments that are 200 years old that... Well, it's, that... An, it's an incredible art even to tune them in the first place because all the parts are so fragile and you have to be so careful. A Steinway now or from the last 80 years... Uh, is just, you know, it's like this solid, it weighs tons, and they're just, yeah. you know, incredible detail in the parts. And there is in these instruments, too, they're just hundreds of years old. So, yeah, they'll fall apart if you play them wrong or tune a string. If you just yank on a string too much, you pop a string. So that's one of the magical things that... Um, you know, uh, I'm so lucky to have in my arsenal is a master tuner and restorer. I mean, that's the other part. Not is he's not only tuning well, them. He, he personally I mean, he has a historical context that yeah. is deep in its own. It's I mean, he could probably write a fucking thesis on what he knows about the history of the piano. Absolutely, absolutely. Steve Steve was the head of the Hudson Valley Piano Technicians Guild for decades and has taught many of the tuners here in the area, and he's just an OG, you know, 
Jewish brother from way back, and he's right. just he's a bro. Um, but he's a master on the same level as these great masters who come and play with, you know, with me. And so actually one of the things Steve Greenstein loves the most is tuning for my sessions because he'll hang around for a few hours after and hang with Steve Swallow, you know, and Dave Liebman. He's a head, right. Drake. Oh, he's a super head. And he's a great player, too. Played in many crazy bands. Used to play in reggae bands. You know, Steve's the real deal. Um, yeah. He's a master tuner. You're not just a, randomly a master tuner. You're, you know, you're a master. And so I love him so much. And, you know, he comes to tune. And he's always like, you know, what time's Brad Jones coming at the session? <laughs> I'm like, oh, Steve, he'll be say, here at noon, man. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can, I feel like in your playing in the last 10 plus years, I hear a lot more air, a lot more like kind of space around the playing. And now just hearing what we've talked about for the last 15 minutes, 20 minutes, it, it seems like you're enjoying letting the piano do its thing to some degree. Oh, yeah. And just letting music do its thing is really yeah. what it is. I mean, you know, we've talked about this before that I'm so proud of the decades I spent in New York City making music. And I've uh, been up here in the country, in the Hudson Valley, for it's 13 years now. Um, and my music just really quickly changed. Um, and there is air and space around your brain. And um, I, I guess since you're doing audio only on this, if you're not going to end I mean, up, you're going to try some video? I don't know. I'm just like, as we're talking, I, you know, we, we started with yeah. this, but I'm looking at this clear blue sky. Yeah. I can hear, I mean, as like a small, young boy in upstate New York, like yeah. I'm looking at the summertime that I grew oh, yeah. up with and oh, just yeah. missing it. Yeah. It's so beautiful here. It's so. Um, such a great life and i'm so lucky to have gotten here with my wife and kids and um it really changed my music very quickly and i was able to sort of think in a way that i wasn't in new york city i was really mm -hmm. uh wrapped up in that city energy and it's fantastic amazing and that's where we get so much of the great music that we love or so so much of so many of the great musics that we love come from that city and that energy and that's where you go to play with the masters and learn from the masters and hear the masters and so even as a kid um i skipped my senior prom to go see the mal waldron quintet at sweet basil when right. i was 17 years old with andrew surreal um I mean, it, you know what I mean? Like, that's what yeah, we yeah, did. Yeah. Like, growing up around New York, we used to sneak into shows. You could drink at Sweet Basil. when I, I, I could drink at Sweet Basil when I was 16. I could li literally, if you could pay the cover, it was like ridiculous cover, 40 bucks and a two-drink minimum. But if you yeah. could do it, they'll serve you Coronas all night, you know? <laughs> or they did back then. So um, we used to, all my friends, you know, we would just go down and see shows. I saw everybody at used to go to Sweet Basil a lot because as teenagers, we could right. just sit down, you know. And so um, I saw Art Blakey many, many times at Sweet Basil. Did we you ever see Jufri at Sweet Basil? Um, I never saw Jufri at Sweet Basil, but I did see Jufri, Blay, and Gary Peacock. Swallow oh. was so strangely not on the gig, but um, at the Village Vanguard a bunch of times, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you that story because it's great. Yeah. Um, uh, 
I had I studied for one year with Paul Blay at New England Conservatory, and I also knew Jimmy Jufrey really well, but never really studied with him. The deal with Jimmy was he's like literally the sweetest man you'll ever meet in your whole life. Ros- you can hear it in every note of his music. That's right. And just like Roswell Rudd, those two yeah. is the most positivity you could ever experience. And my very first year at New England Conservatory, Jimmy Jufrey taught the freshman ensembles. And so I went in my first day, and super nice guy. We're all like 17, 18 years old. We're kids and children. And we started playing. And about halfway through, Jimmy Jufrey came over to me, and he leaned over, and he whispered in my ear, and he said, You don't need to be here. (laughs) Yeah, and he just, the first day, within 20 minutes, passed me out of the beginner ensemble, (laughs) you know. And then he said, you know, tell him I said so, (laughs) you know. And, And he just sent me out of the room, done. But he was so nice and such a sweet man and so beautiful. He's the best. So then, you know, and then I studied with Blay, you know, who was uh, brilliant and a trip, and I learned so much from him. And maybe, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, I I have a million great, hilarious Blay stories. But let's stay. Let's stick with Jimmy Jufrey, and Uh so um, and Blay. And so um, around that time, they had put out these new records with that classic group with Swallow and Swallow now on electric bass, Mm -hmm. and they were playing at Sweet Basil. So I texted Blay, or not texted, I probably called Blay. You know, this was in the early 90s, no texting. Um, Although if anybody had a cell phone with texting, it was Paul Blay. No, it was Paul Blay, but also me. Yes, Paul Paul Blay had this whole story about he had the first mini Moog or the first Moog synthesizer mm-hmm. that ever left the thing, he drove to Buffalo and, like, swiped it from Bob Moog, like Mini Moog number one or something right. like that. He, he, he always was at the forefront of technology, actually. Paul was brilliant like that. Why he had so many synths on his records for many years drove people crazy, but he did it. And, yeah. and so I called Blay and I said, hey, I'd love to come down and see you with... with with Jufri, he said, sure. So he put me on the list and I took a good friend of mine down. I'm not going to say his name, but he's a great jazz musician as well. And um, you'll understand why I'm not saying his name in a minute, because I'm only going to implicate myself. And so, Uh um, you know, we were young lunatics. And so um, we took a bunch of mushrooms and took the subway down to Sweet Basil and I walked into Sweet Basil, and Blay was standing right at the front door. It was about maybe 45 minutes before the show. You could eat at Sweet Basil, too. Oh, no, this was—I'm sorry. This was—no, this was Sweet Basil, actually. It was Sweet Basil, not the Vanguard. This was okay. Sweet Basil. Um, because they had a dressing room around the corner in a different building. It was just like a gate that they would pull up, and it was a little room. There wasn't even a bathroom in there. It was just like a couple of bottles of water and a little fridge with beer. And that was the the dressing room for Sweet Basil. And so Paul was like, come with me. Let's go to the dressing room. And I'm tripping on mushrooms hard. And we go back there, me and my buddy, sax player friend. And Jufri's there. And he's like, oh, hi, Jamie. Smiles. And, like, my brain is melting. And, and 
Paul Blay starts fucking with us and he's just telling these horrible jokes and he would cackle with laughter after. Wait, jokes at your expense? No, no, just tell, okay. just like making horrible, stupid jokes, you know, okay. kind of puns and stupid jokes. And man, my just my face was melting off my head. And I'm like in this room with like my heroes, Jimmy Jufri, the sweetest man you'd ever meet, and uh, and Paul Blay and and Peacock too, you know, and. We were just these tripping young kids, and that was my fun hearing Jufri and Blay at Sweet Basil's. It was a fantastic show, and um, but yeah, you know, so lucky to have his. I mean, Jufri's music just makes more and more sense as time passes. Like it just it it really ages well. It certainly does. It certainly does. And you know, Jimmy Roswell Rudd. Dave Liebman, these are the true heroes of the music. Charles Downs, Joe Morris, these are these guys have given everything for this music. Well, let, let, let's talk about Joe for a second because I did put it out like, hey, if anyone has a question, send it in. And someone did write in and they they asked specifically about your relationship with Joe Morris and and you know how it continues to evolve and, and what it's been like. Well, absolutely. I met Joe actually when I was a student at New England Conservatory, uh, probably around 1990. I first met Joe through uh, a couple of mutual friends uh, from Boston, a drummer named Kurt Newton, uh, who mm -hmm. played in a lot of great improvising Boston bands, uh, and a bass player named Nate McBride. And yeah. um, actually, Joe, Nate, Kurt, and I made a record in about maybe 91 or 92 um, that I recently found. It was made in this studio in Boston that a lot of people made records in, and uh, it's incredible. And it was released officially? No, or? it's never been released. Joe and I talk about it. We'll put it out eventually. But um, it's me at sort of the height of my New England Conservatory training powers. And so I had been studying for a few years already with Joe Maneri, who mm -hmm. is a great hero and had been playing with Joe and uh, learning about everything with Joe. Joe had me, Joe Maneri. Um, yeah. Joe had me transcribing Mozart string quartets. Joe Maneri had me um, learning to play and sing Schumann and Schubert leader like yeah. songs, like opera songs. And so I had to learn the, um, you know, the piano part and the, uh, uh, the, uh, the singing part. Yeah. And um, Joe had me playing Jewish music and playing, listening to Webern and Schoenberg and learning about 12 tones and microtones we studied for many, many years. Um, and Joe Morris was, you know, very much a heavyweight of improvised music already when I met him in the 90s and had this broad discography of records that he had put out on lots of different labels and some on his own label. And Joe was just this incredibly accomplished Joe Morris uh, free improviser um, and a great conceptualist. And Joe always knew not only about how to really improvise the real way, with no barriers, 
and mm -hmm. no boundaries and mm -hmm. trusting in the path in that way that the true improvisers do. Um, but he knew how to articulate it in words too, and always did. And Joe always spoke um, so articulately about the process of what we do. Um, and Joe and I were friends. We made that record in 91 or 92 and you know, it, it's still around. We'll put it out eventually. And then uh, I moved to New York you know, to go do the New York thing. Uh, and I kind of, kind of lost touch with Joe. Not, you know, we, nothing specific. We just didn't see each other or speak for a while. And we used to run into each other on festivals in Europe and be like, man, great to see you. And, you know, we should play. And it took right. us, took us, you know, a long time. It took us probably 15 years to realize it. And then we started playing again and it was like, wow shit okay you know i mean joe morris is is one of the deepest improvisers i've i've ever experienced and joe is the true fearless uh the fearless one you know joe mm -hmm. wrote this incredible book uh called perpetual, perpetual frontier correct yeah and i believe it's called perpetual frontier the properties of, of free music yep. something like i'm that. looking at it right now on my yeah, show. there you go um, and in it, Joe talks about sort of major threads in contemporary improvised music, Cecil Taylor, Albert Eiler, you know, Cecil Taylor unit structures, Anthony Braxton. Um, and, you know, Joe is incredible at articulating what we do. Um, but Joe in the music is the ultimate expression of his idea of perpetual frontier. Joe reinvents himself and music every time he plays he yeah. never plays the same shit twice and there's no need to and joe um has always sort of focused his music solely in that pursuit not solely but um very much in the pursuit of of reinventing himself every time and so when you play with Joe, you can't just fall back on what you do or what you practiced or what you think you should do. Um, there's no preconceived ideas. Um, it's trusting in the, the path and trusting that, you know, we all can play and we all have a lot of experience playing this music. Um, that's why I say I'm always learning. You know, anytime I get to be in the room making music with a Dave Liebman, a Roswell Rudd, a Joe Morris, or a Charles Downs, or any of these guys, um, I'm learning every minute. Mm -hmm. And I find that they are also learning. And it's one of the amazing things I find about all of my heroes, that even Roswell Rudd, at 80 years old, wanted to grow and wanted to keep yeah. learning and keep in the music and keep fresh. He used to always, he'd call me, he'd come over and play, you know, even when he was sick, you know, and um, it's all about learning and all about that process. And so I find that, you know, all of these legends that I play with, not only are they uh, masters and legends, but they learn every time. And that yeah. goes for the great piano tuners. That goes for the great studio engineers like Christian Castaño. You know, we are all constantly growing and 
when you stop wanting to learn is when you are done. And so um, Chris and I just had a sort of pinnacle experience together recently doing a show. And, you know, Chris and I, uh, Chris Castaño and I have been making dub records and fascinated with dub records, you know, forever, decades. And uh, I have this reggae band called New Zion Trio. Uh, we did a, a festival show in Paris this year at uh, Saint Diver Festival. Uh, and I had couple of great jazz and also reggae and music masters with me, Hamid Drake on drums and Bradley Jones on bass. Um, and I decided, you know, they said to me, if you want, you could bring a fourth musician. And I said, well, I want to bring Christian Castaño to do live dubs with us as we mm. play. And, you know, Chris and I have done lots of live dub kind of concepts. But this was a truly unique and new experience because um, Chris has really sort of mastered the approach of, of dubbing improvisers live. That's what we do together. And we, a lot of our interaction and connection is doing that um, in the studio, making records like that. Um, and that's what you hear on a lot of my classic 90s records is mm -hmm. Chris and I in the studio doing something insane you know, like bothering the neighbors kind of vibe at 4 a.m. We have lots Just a of... a singular partnership. Very much so. Very much yeah. so. For decades yeah, yeah, yeah. and decades. And, you know, we learn so much about, about all these things from each other. I, I teach Chris about harmony and music and instruments. And, you know, Chris is a philosopher. And we talk about... Judaism and religion and spirituality and finding the sort of, you know, my whole trip is, you know, I find the spirituality in, in the music. That's, that's my davening, you know, mm -hmm. is I, you know, that's the ecstatic state is when you're playing music, um, especially with your heroes and people you just love. Um, and so Chris and I, uh, we sort of put this, show together uh in a way that chris could do live dubs he had this incredible dj mixer that is super high end is very expensive it's kind of the you know the top fanciest dj mixer that people are rocking raves for a hundred thousand people with these this crazy it's it's very high end dj mixer um the the rental company had to purchase one basically you know he said like armand van buren uses this when he does like a rave and and, and that kind of level so a really hi-fi mastering grade dj yeah. mixer that he was able to feed all the elements in so he had the drums in one channel the bass the keyboards vanessa was there doing some vocals Ugh. and then he had his whole live dub trip going but he and hamid and me and Brad, but really a lot with Hamid, had this sort of apex moment of interacting as improvisers with the dub experience. And so uh, I'm very proud to report, too, that that concert was beautifully recorded at 96K, and that record's coming out also on Rare Noise, Knockwood, in 2021. Um, yeah. You know, New Zion live at Saint Diver in Paris with Chris Castaño on live dubs. It's it's really something special. Um, yeah. So you'll you'll see a, a double vinyl pressing of that too next year. Um, 
Uh, so yeah, you know, sort of, it, it all comes together um, throughout the decades, you know, playing with Joe Morris in 1990 when I was a kid. And here we are today in 2020, still making records. And yeah. I'm so proud of the body of records I've put out with my man, Joe Morris. We have so many crazy records that we've done over the last number of years. Uh, we have two or three Spanish donkey records out, uh, which is a trio with Mike Pride that we have. Uh, Joe and I did that incredible record with Wadada Leo Smith mm -hmm. and Trevor Dunn and Balash Pandy. Uh, Joe and I have a record with Mats Gustafsson and Pandy. Right. Um, Joe and I just put out a totally new record, a new concept for us completely, which we did here in Quarantino. And <laughs> Wait, you recorded it during quarantine? We did. It came out about, uh, I don't know, maybe a month ago, three weeks ago. It was all done from the very first day of quarantine. You haven't heard it yet, young Jeremiah. No, I I'm going to send it to you. It's called... You didn't record it over like FaceTime. You recorded it... No. We, so okay. here's... It's... Uh, Joe, on this record, Joe plays drums, acoustic uh -huh. bass, guitar, acoustic guitar... Um, he has sort of an, uh, some type of African guitar that's, I think, maybe three or four strings that uh -huh. he was playing on that, too. And then I, you know, basically we did it. I said, send me a bunch of drums. So he sent me a bunch of drums. And then I started tracking some of my stuff, my Mellotrons, uh, my organs, you know, all my stuff. Some, I did a bunch of Echoplex piano. And then I started asking him, give me four six-minute sections of acoustic bass, two of them fast, one medium, one slow. And he would send me those, and I would start placing them in. It's a total okay. Pro Tools record. Total Pro yeah, Tools yeah, yeah. record. Nothing really... Well, Joe didn't record anything with me. He right, recorded right. his parts, sent them to me. I assembled this crazy 77-minute release from all the sort of tracks he gave me and all the stuff I added. And it was just this totally new process yeah. um, that yielded something really unique. I'm really proud of this record. The record's called Lundy Road. It's on Joe's label, Glacial Erratic. It's on, up on Bandcamp. And so it's kind of like, like a music concrete almost. It is, um, but it wouldn't sound like music concrete when you listen to it. I would I would call it more like... Uh, it's, it sounds like Twin Peaks soundtrack. You know, it's, 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 it's like surreal. It sounds like a film. It's right. very cinematic. And so I actually added, um, I added like a lot of uh, like uh, DJ mixer elements. So um, one of the things that Chris and I and Mr. Dorgon, my brother, Mr. Dorgon, uh -huh. uh -huh. out from San Francisco, uh, used to be in New York with us for decades. We have this band called Pramrod Sexina, and um, we all, the three of us, me and Chris and Dorgon, were really into these sampling DJ mixers. Uh, these Newmark DJ mixers, they've been making them forever, and they have these quick little samplers on them with a bunch of buttons, and then you right. can pitch shift up and down, and we can do a whole show of just sampling stuff from into the DJ mixer, and we do these, like, dance-all dub freakouts, you know. Um, and so 
for the Lundy Road record with Joe, I added tons of like motets, backwards motets, and medieval music, singing, and um, uh, I'm really into this Borscht Belt comedian named Bell Barth. Do you know Bell Barth? Bell, no. Bell Barth was um, a, a blue Yiddish theater Cat, Catskills Borscht Belt comedian. I'm write this down. Yeah, Bell Barth, B E L L E Barth, B A R T H. There used okay. to be nothing of Bell Barth on YouTube, but now there's a lot of Bell Barth. Suddenly, in the last couple of years, people figured it out. But um, I've been, I've had all of her records. Um, she has records called "If I Embarrass You, Tell a Friend." <laughs> you know, and like, so good. and they're just hilarious. And she's got like a klezmer trio backing her up: accordion and a drummer and a clarinet player. And it's borscht belt, but dirty borscht belt comedy. So you know, you know, it's it's so inappropriate. It's totally fucking you know doesn't fly anymore. Right. Um, but Bell Barth's voice is incredible. And so there's a lot of backwards Bell Barth on there. Um, incredible in like a like a beautiful Jimmy Scott way or no no beautiful she's a Borscht Belt comedian a Yiddish yeah. theater comedian it's half in Yiddish and half in English you know yeah. and, the, and the the accordion player and the drummer and their ba-dum-ching you know for every like you know like it's it's just it's totally hilarious Bell Barth records are really amazing really irreverent very much in the Lenny Bruce you know, super sexual, hypersexual, more sexual almost than Lenny Bruce. You know, sure. Lenny Bruce was um, breaking boundaries. And actually, Jerry Grinelli was very close with Lenny Bruce. And used really? to, yeah, Jerry Grinelli used to accompany Lenny Bruce for years, toured with him and was friends. And yeah, um, Jerry's a legend. Jerry used to play uh, Sit In with the Grateful Dead and Sly in the Family Stone in the 60s. And you know, heard Coltrane a million times and Elvin and, you know, uh, Jerry talks about, you know, San Francisco was sort of the other major jazz city. Yeah. And, yeah, so, and Lenny Bruce was really active out there. Totally. And everybody would come through there. So, I mean, Jerry knew everyone and heard everyone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Lundy Road is this crazy record, uh, that Joe and I put together, I'm super proud of. Very cinematic, really interesting, totally new process. I mean, Joe, more literally more than any musician I know, and I'm talking musicians in their 20s, musicians in their 70s, more than any musician I know is open to new information. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. like that's what you're playing with when you play. I'm so bummed. I had a, a recording session booked with him for June. That. Oh, wow. I put together a band that I felt like would wow. be perfect in that spirit of just three, you know, me, Joe Morris, and then Russell Greenberg, this classical percussionist. Wow, cool. Well, I'll I'll say this to you, Jeremiah. Um, you're looking at me sitting here on my porch here in the Hudson Valley in the blue sky, and one of the things I've been doing is I've been recording people in my backyard, and yeah. you know, just setting up mics, and I have a whole headphone system that reaches out to the backyard, no problem, and my Pro Tools rig in my studio. So I just set clients up right outside the studio door. Hey, really? And, yeah, I'm not even kidding. Uh, I, it's been amazing. I uh, there's a singer songwriter around here, great guy and good friend of mine named Billy Manis. Uh, great 
song singer songwriter and he's been dying to come and record a tune for for weeks and weeks for months and you know since quarantine started and uh, he comes and records one or two tunes at a time you know and outside um, and so i said man show up you know show up uh thursday at four o'clock and bring a set of headphones and come to the backyard and um Plug in your guitar. There'll be a quarter-inch cable. Just plug in. He plays it a, a really nice acoustic guitar with a beautiful uh-huh. pickup. I had two mics out there, one for the guitar, one for his voice. Pop filter, little, you know, uh, mic, uh, you know, reflection thing. Right, you know? right, right. And, uh, and he plugged in the, the pickup, and I gave him a thumbs up, and he recorded his tune. That is such a serious vibe. It's It was a major vibe. I'll send you a picture later. And then, you know, I have these little white chairs outside the studio on the lawn, and he sat on the lawn with the screen door open while I tracked the Hammond organ on it, and then I mixed his track, and he's sitting out in the garden, and I upload the mix to Dropbox, and he sits on his iPhone in the garden and check the mix. I was like, listen to it once and make sure it's cool. And the dude was all set. And so hey. if you want to come make a record, I'll do it for you anytime. And you guys can um, be very socially distant. But um, you'll be in my backyard, and, you know, it's beautiful here, and there's nobody but you three. And it's, it'd be Man. really easy to... to to facilitate that. That sounds amazing. I'm so sick of social distancing. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, understandable. It's this is a serious moment and um it's one of the reasons that making a lot of music that's inspired and positive and real and not contrived and has a, a good feeling and a positive intention is so important for for us. Yeah. And it's the, you know, one of the things that um, people really need right now is some good music. To Have you been practicing much? No, I've been making records. Yeah. I mean, practicing, yeah, maybe I played a little more piano than I usually do just because I'm here. But, um, you know, I spent a lot of time over the last few weeks preparing for this big live stream concert that I did right. on Thursday, which I believe you caught some of. And uh-huh. your picture was hilarious and great uh-huh. of me on your Instagram in my in my hat. You like my hat? You look like a chassid. I did, an Amish chassid or something. Uh-huh. But that hat really has a lot of power and... Um, you know, that hat actually belonged to Bradford Graves, who was the sculptor who made all those sculptures. That was Ver- okay. Verna Gillis's first husband, who passed away many years ago. Um, and they live there, here in Kerhunksen, where we live, uh, I, th- I think since the 70s. Uh, and Brad was a master sculptor and really talented, um, super talented. And so, uh... I was looking for a great hat. You know, I've never had a hat that really fit me or that I thought was worth wearing. I'm not really a hat guy, but uh-huh. I really, one of the things I really wanted to do on this live stream concert was just present at a really high level. You know, yeah. one, one of the things, and I've seen you talk a little bit about this in your social networking feeds, is that... Um, you know, everybody is home trying to figure it out and put out 
whatever they have, <laughs> you know, and anything, do anything. And people are doing these live stream concerts where they just turn on their iPhone in their living room and they're just sitting there playing and like asking right. for tips. And that's, I'm really not interested in that. I'm, no. st I'm still doing records at the same really high level that I always have and will continue to. And I, I've dedicated everything that I do to that sort of path. Um, and seeing as there won't really be live shows for a while in the traditional sense, um, and I'm not going to speculate on when that is, and everybody asks me, and I don't know, you know, but it's going to be a while before we can go down into the Village Vanguard and, and do a show, you know. So um, everybody's sort of looking for a, sort of a new way of having a collective musical uplifting experience mm -hmm. and um i've been talking to a lot of my friends who do this on a very high level everybody's trying things and uh, i don't know maybe a month ago uh, a good friend of mine a total soul brother of mine scarrick you, you know scarrick of course uh master Legend. sax player lunatic uh plays the black metal saxophone he says um, and uh, Skerrick's just my brother, old friend and collaborator. And I saw Skerrick was doing a live stream. And so, of course, I tuned in. And man, within the first 60 seconds, I was just floored at the yeah. level he was presenting. Um, he just had this master video artist doing video and a lot of his close friends like Maurice Caldwell and Brad Moen. Um, all dressed up in these insane outfits in separate spaces with vocal mics and doing these zombie dances in like full uniforms and it was just like it, it was like tripping i mean honestly i i, I remember you texted me while it was happening yeah You're like, you check this out so yeah. I, I tuned into it and it reminded me so closely of when i first started checking out college radio you know, yeah. a thousand years ago where you would turn it on late at night yeah. and you would just be like, I don't know what this is. But it's amazing. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, yeah, and yeah. that was totally it. It was like drugs watching Skerrick. Mm -hmm. But the amazing thing was um, he was doing it through this website called liveconcertsstream.com. Live concerts with an S stream. So two S's. It's a very difficult URL. The URL is challenged. <laughs> But it was put together by a bunch of Seattle programmer, musician friends, brilliant guys who were all Skerrick's friends at the beginning of this pandemic. So 100% of the money goes directly to the musician's PayPal account. Um, and it's they don't take anything. You know, you can tip them as well. Um, but it's it was so obvious it was musician conceived and programmed mm -hmm. and they had this incredible counter where you could watch the the money come in the donations come in and it was like so exciting and then they were streaming on facebook on youtube on twitch and maybe on their website also directly um and there was this incredible comments threads going through it so everybody was like man this is incredible this is like drugs watching this and then the the moderator would be like oh man donation from jamie 666 thanks right. you know like and and so you're sitting there and it was so exciting 
and it felt like we were all together at a concert. And yeah. he just blew my doors with that. And so I immediately started texting him, hey, like, how'd you do this? Who did this? Who's it? Who, who made this website? It was so obvious that musicians had made it you know, mm -hmm. for artists. And so turns out it's a bunch of him and his friends conceived of this to try and put this together to help artists during but, the I quarantine. Mean, at, its, at its very essence, and you pulled this off with your live stream concert, is like step one, how do we transcend the medium? Absolutely. Yeah, like Absolutely. step one, you know, like yeah. this has to we, this has to be more exciting than what we're currently looking well, at. That's, and like, that's, that's right. That's the impulse. Not just a little more exciting, infinitely more exciting. Yeah. And so Skerrick just like raised the bar so high, stories and stories high. And so, you know, when I, I when I conceived of it, I said, I got to do something serious here. And so so fortunate to have these great friends, Mustafa Bagat and his uh -huh. wife, Laura, their Flickr films and Mustafa. They're both masters of video and shooting, uh, camera work, editing. And so they did all of that live streaming right there in the moment, editing all the camera work. It was just the two of them, the multi-camera shot. It was a vibe. It was and, an absolute vibe. Yeah. Is they're, yeah. they're total masters of their craft as well. Um, and I tried to put together a really fun program that would work for me alone in the sculpture <laughs> park. There were maybe 10 or 15 people, plus my wife and kids, you know, hanging out really far over on the other side, you know, just to keep it all socially distant and um, happy like that. Um, but I really wanted to try and present something that people sitting in their house would just be floored by. And so... Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, honestly, the other thing about it was the sound was really good. I turned it on. I checked it out with my eyes for a few minutes, but then I just cranked up the volume and was doing shit yep, around my yep, house, just yep. enjoying the music. Well, thank you. I did that all myself. That was, it was amazing. Well, thank you so much. I worked for weeks tweaking my mix of the whole concert. So I had my whole rig set up in the studio and I had the vocal mic for Vanessa and part of my rig was a whole dub rig. So I had uh, Ibanez analog delays and I had a, it's not a master room spring reverb. I forget what kind of spring reverb it is, but it's a little rack mount spring reverb. Um, and, you know, I had all my keyboards and I had them all going into a mixer that I was then recording the two track feed into Pro Tools for weeks rehearsing for my show. Right. So every day I could hear exactly what was coming out of those two XLR main outs of my mixer and what Mustafa was going to be getting to, to put with the video. And so I tweaked that mix so much. I spent so much time getting, uh, you know, I made Vanessa sing Sunshine Seas one million times every day, you know, so that to get it right, to get it just right. Um, and that was hard because I was live mixing myself during the show. Not only yeah. was I improvising all that music, it wasn't all improvised. Those are vibes that I had sort of prepared, yeah, 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 you yeah. know, but... But um, you have to be present to play music. 100%. 100%. It's tricky enough to have to focus on two things. 100%, yes. And so, um, yeah, you know, uh, I'm, I'm really proud of that show. No, that was and good. It, it, was, it was great. It was really fun. So I, we got a question came in from, from one of our good buddies, Francisco Rodriguez. My brother. 
Your brother. And Francisco wants to know, he says, my question for Saft, the last artist who made you change the way that you understand music or the last book that you made, or the last book that made you see something in particular from another perspective? Wow, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, I rarely have time to read a book anymore, and that's something I really regret, is I buy books all the time and don't read them, and I really am angry at myself for that. So Francisco's question, my brother, will perhaps push me to read all these great books. Like I've had J.B. Smoove's book on my mantle, trying to read that book forever, I even bought the audio book and couldn't even figure out how to get that going. So I just said, I'll read it In the case of J.B. Smoove, you want the audio book, I think. I mean, his, his you voice want is the magic. audio book. No, it's his incredible. Voice is magic. It's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. I listened to a little bit of it. But, um, uh, well, I would say, uh, let's see, artist who's made me change the way I think about things. Well, certainly... I don't know if it's the most recent, but uh, Roswell Rudd really yeah. made me change the way I think about uh, music completely. Um, and Roswell's positive energy, but attention to detail. He wanted it right and always pushed you um, to play it better um, and was respectfully prodding you to... Um, hit it harder to Mm -hmm. invest more of your soul into it sometimes when i would hang with roswell i would start playing and he would be in the other room and he would just come out and he would blast these notes out that would soar over he would do it here at the studio warming up he would come outside here onto the lawn and he would start blasting and it it would um it would wake you up (laughs) but it would also push you Mm-hmm. to play harder, to play better, to play deeper, to really put your your soul into it and your essence into it. And that's one of the things I experience with all these musicians is, you know, you find with the great masters that um, they haven't lasted this long for nothing. There's a real, you know, it's a reason why all these people are performing and creating at at the very highest levels well into their old age you see it with a master like marshall allen who turned 96 a few days ago you know you uh roswell rudd you know that record we made strength and power is on the very highest level and that's the Mm -hmm. really the last document of roswell playing completely free no compositions and so I'm, I'm super proud of that and that was very much a learning experience for us as younger musicians and um, Balash Pandey the drummer really talks about that how um, he had to change and he had to find a new way to do it to rise to that occasion and we we all experienced that with Wadada Leo Smith as well Wadada was incredibly focused on exactly what he wanted to do even though we were just improvising free and so um, I'll never forget we played what I thought was the sound check piece and we finished it it was great and Wadada said that's the first tune on the record 
And we all kind of were like, oh, you know, we thought that was the soundtrack. And he was like, nope, that's the first tune on the record. Okay. And it was. And it's great. It's killer. And it's amazing. And you hear the moment of discovery in that. that. And so... um, you know, I, I mean, you, you don't you don't get to a level of musicianship that someone like without a without a Leo Smith is at without having a really refined sense of intuition. So if he says that's the first cut, absolutely, that's the first cut. Absolutely, he's the OG. You know, yeah. if he says that's the first cut, that's the fucking first cut. Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah. very much so. You know, and um, I always really grow and change and have to think about what I do really deeply um, when I work with the guys from Bad Brains. Uh, And I'm still here fortunate to um, get to work and make music with those guys. And um, that for me is, it's it's super challenging. Um, You want it to be just right. Um, And either it's right or it's not. And mm-hmm. so um, I'm always learning when I make music with those guys, especially Daryl Jennifer, who's just, you know, such a master of music and also has this incredible breadth of experience of American music. And it's different mm-hmm. from jazz, um, although I'm sure you know this, that Bad Brains, when they started out, they wanted to be like Mahavishnu Orchestra or Return mm-hmm. to Forever and Stanley Clark. You know, they wanted mm-hmm. to play jazz fusion um and but they were you know hip-hop guys too Um, man the way that daryl jennifer plays the electric bass every aspect of it the intonation uh the physical approach the way his hands handle the bass i've never something about it i i zone out immediately and i can watch and listen to him play for an entire night. Oh, yeah. I mean, first it's, of all, Daryl's sound is so serious. And even when you hear him playing his electric bass not even plugged in, you immediately hear that sound. It's yeah. it's, it's in the fingers, and it, that's him, you know. And he defined that sound. He yeah. was a pioneer of, of so many sounds. And It's so funny. Like, I have a pretty uh, caveman way of thinking about this, but in my mind, I'm always like, no, the Fender Jazz Bass, that's not meant for loud electric, electronic, loud, like, rock music. And then it's like, wait a second. That's the Daryl Jennifer bass. Yeah, Daddy D. Yeah. yeah, I mean he's you know he's a great master and he's also a great master of putting a track together and so you know we we've, we've been working on all sorts of different music and I've been so lucky over the years to have done a number of live shows with those guys and uh, maybe two years ago I finally um, realized the dream of playing with all four original members with HR Doc Daryl and Earl um, and that was super inspired and and great and fun. Um, But, you know, working on tracks in the studio with them is an incredible uh, inspiration and challenge at the same time. And uh, we did a record a bunch of years ago that hasn't come out yet that was a live live in-studio record. So we did this uh, up at Applehead Studios here in the Hudson Valley, and we did uh, me, Doc, Daryl, Earl... And uh, this uh, Jamaican singer named Jesse Royal, super talented, younger singer, 
Uh, it was like a, a reggae record. Um, yeah. Live in studio, there was about 150 people having a party in the studio, in the live room with us while we're trying to make a record. It was super challenging, but amazing record and um, yeah. it's great learning experience. So Yeah, they're the, they're the best. They're, they're the best band ever. I agree with that. I would agree yeah. with that. One of the one of the best bands ever. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's wrap it up. I want to say that. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for taking the time and, and talking today. But I said it at the top. Um, the last meal I had in a restaurant before the world went crazy, March twelfth, two thousand twenty. If someone said to me, "Hey, man, you're never going to eat in a restaurant again. Right. Pick your last meal and pick your dining companion." Oh. It'd be. Shopsons with Jamie Saft. Oh, you're the greatest, Jeremiah. I would agree with you. It would, for me, it would be Shopsons with you, my brother. That yeah, was I absolutely. Mean, first of all, talk about masters doing their thing at the championship level. Shopsons yep. is that, and yep. uh, you know, Kenny Shopson was a great improviser and a great conceptualist. Absolutely, and may he rest in power. You know. I feel so fortunate to have had him cook a meal for me. Yeah. Many yeah, meals, yeah, yeah. but yep. just even one meal would have been enough from the hand of Kenny Shopson. But just so fortunate to to know that place. And, you know, you're you're absolutely right. That's the best of New York City, and that's the the best of humanity. Is, yeah, is that, absolutely. Is that um, level of care and level of... Of. Of absolute harmonic richness. Yeah. You know, Absol like it's hilarious. Totally. It's touching. It's invigorating. It's just literally like a symphony for the entire like 30 minutes that you're in there. That's right. That's right. It's a transcendent experience. And the food itself is totally transcendent. It's absolutely yeah. the best plate of food you'll have in New York City on whatever day you go there, whatever yeah, and, you and order. The, yeah. You know, it's yeah, it's really it's something best. magical. So, uh, uh, you know, I hope they can continue to do their thing after this quarantino. Yeah. yeah. But man, All right, dude. Jeremiah, my, what a pleasure, bro. Yeah, give my love to the family. I will, absolutely. Thanks a lot. All right, I'll talk to you soon, Jamie. You will. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. That was Jamie Saft, the one, the only, my brother, of many, 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 many years. I, I gotta say, I said it a couple times already, but those crickets in the background for me just like make this interview. Check out Jamie's new record, The Golden Scale. It is absolutely stunning. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. Just an amazing document of, of instrumental music on instruments that you've probably never heard before. Go to his website, jamiesaf.com this Wednesday uh, go to Pi the Pioneer Works website that's pioneerworks.org I'll be doing a live stream concert as part of uh, an evening of really great music I'm going to play at 8 but tune in at 7.30 Ben Greenberg is going to play solo Yuka Honda Leah Bertucci Greg Fox it's going to be a good night of music and then remember that this Friday June 5th if you want to check out some new music in the recorded format go to Bandcamp once again, they're waiving all their fees, giving the money straight to the artist. Uh, pick up Jamie's new record, The Golden Scale. Pick up my new record, and, um, and that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Talk to you soon. Bye.